guys, what's up? So I got in contact with G.P. Jacobs because of his podcast, Money, Power, Land, Solidarity. It is about the Upper Harbor Terminal Development out in North Minneapolis, Minnesota. In this episode, we touch upon so many topics, including master planning for this project. I reach out to him not only because his podcast is dope, but also because he's potentially the end user of this. Or is he? And that's another question that we explored because he is from a working class family. And the question is, are we able to afford to go to places like Upper Harbor Terminal? Like you think about New York City and the new development over at their harbor, basically, who funded it and who is it really for? It's kind of like one of those questions where you're an architect and you're designing these beautiful homes or these multifamily places where someone would live. And the question is, would you be able to live (laughs) in your own creation, the disconnect and how wide the wealth gap is we talk about it all the time we talk about the wealth gap but when you experience it i don't know if you even recognize it when it's in front of your face it's it's the ability to afford certain things and it's it's a different world being a millionaire and billionaire it's a completely different world but anyways back to the upper harbor terminal When you see a project like this, this massive project, as an architect, you get excited because you see all the potential, all the possibilities, all the money that you can possibly make out of this. If you could just get that project, that multifamily or that concert hall or any little piece of it from design to construction, you want a little piece of that pie. But we forget once the project is over, we move on. We snap photographs, we enter it in award magazines, and then that's it. It's over. We move on to the next project. So it's like we're stamping our footprint and then walking away. I mean, that's how architecture is designed. We're not necessarily the end user. Now, at some point in time, you will go down to the harbor and grab something to eat or just look at your creation but you weren't in that community before and you're not in that community afterwards because again we can't afford to live there another thing that uh gp asked he asked this question what type of organizing is happening inside the architectural community to challenge public policy so that we could build more public housing so that we don't have to just sell the land to private developers. And I was like, wow, that's very insightful. And I could not answer that question. What are we doing again? How are we affecting policy again? Now, there's an answer out there somewhere. I'm pretty sure, I'm confident that there is an architect who has worked on this in the past. Because I I always say history always tends to repeat themselves. So I know out there an architect came up with this idea of, of public housing policy or whatever. But 
never quite got it off the ground or whatever. But I can think of one. I don't know anybody. I haven't seen anything. It's not like I've done hard research. It's just a quick Google search or even the research I'm doing now with where I grew up. I I saw one thing, though. That's a policy, but it's not being enforced. And I need to look into that more so I can talk about it more and dig into it. But overall, I, I can't name anything off the top of my head. In the conversation, I want to clear up some things. I mentioned Rural Studio from Auburn University. I made a comment about my pseudo experience there. So again, it's my perspective and my experience. And it was just an encounter with this person that really tainted the program. Now I know one, maybe two people who went through the program, or at least went to the university, and I, I respect both of them. And they they love their school, they rep their school. I've, I've never been to that school, and I'm curious. So maybe, maybe I'll end up talking to a minority who went through that program, just, just to see how it went. I'm kind of curious. But in, in this conversation, I, I touched upon that. So I think that's it. Well, what's coming up is this process of me talking to non-architects. It's been great. It's been an eye-opener. And again, like, I love this conversation. It's 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 long. And there were some parts that I cut out, mainly towards the end, because we started getting off topic and talking about other things. And I felt that it was just us rambling. And I, to be honest, I just <laughs> got lazy and it just didn't feel like editing the rest. I learned a lot from him. And I just let him talk. And he was like, am I talking too too much? I was like, no, keep on talking. Keep on talking. So anyways, hope you enjoy. How did I find you? On IG, this girl Amber with Curated Tolerance. Then I started to look her up, Googled, and then I found your podcast. And then I started listening to your podcast and I was like, I got to have you on here. Nice. Thank you. That's really cool. Yeah. I listened to your podcast over the last week and I really like it too. It's like interesting. Um, I'm, I'm like real novice when it comes to architecture, but I think we're asking some of the similar questions, you know, and I like the weave between kind of the, your personal story and deeper reflections about your family and history, as well as like the uh, t- technical political side of things, you know? So GP Jacob, how did you, where'd you grow up? Where you from? I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Specifically, I'm from Northeast Minneapolis. And that is really tied into like my podcast and the questions I'm asking. It really shapes my politics and my worldview. Northeast Minneapolis is traditionally kind of like the working poor, working class, white section of Minneapolis. It's historically like a lot of Eastern European immigrants. Of course, it's not, never been all European descended folks, you know, there's, it's diverse in different ways, but a good kind of summary to give people a sense of like the neighborhood I came from. I grew up with the phrase where people would say like, what's the longest bridge in the world? And then they'd respond and say the Lowry Bridge or the Broadway Bridge because it connects Poland to Africa. 
because Northeast and North Minneapolis are really hyper segregated working class communities. So if you go on the North side of Minneapolis, it's always been historically black and segregated and oppressed and divested from like a lot of black neighborhoods in the country. And then across the Mississippi River in Northeast Minneapolis was the poor white section of town where a lot of uh, working class people, working poor people of European descent lived in. My generation, like I'm, I'm 34, I was born in 1985. We were kind of the first generation. Really, I, I think the most accurate way to describe it is almost like out of apartheid, you know, where it was like very violently enforced segregation in the generation before ours. But then I grew up around people from all over. I grew up around African-American people. I grew up around Somali people. I grew up around um, people from Ecuador and Mexico. And it was really racially intense in terms of like the some people from northeast took a really hard reactionary stance to that integration you know and that violent strain of racism was still present and then a lot of us took the other direction you know and like rejected that ideology and you know had multiracial friend groups or there's a lot of multiracial families so I, I grew up you know fighting about racism and there was like neo-nazis in my middle school along with you know, a lot of anti-racist. So it was like a working poor, multi-racial community. And then I think another, you know, point that gets to our conversation is Northeast Minneapolis is, is one of the most aggressively gentrified parts of Minneapolis. Like when I was growing up, it was not the place to be. It was, you know, post-industrial, mostly poor people and now is like the hippest part of town it's it was designated the arts district in kind of the early 2000s and a lot of people got displaced a lot of new buildings went up the neighborhood really got flipped kind of and now it's like one of the more expensive desirable parts of the city to live in and of course just like anything that kind of oversimplifies it there's nuance you know there's still poor people that live in northeast minneapolis and northeast minneapolis isn't just one neighborhood it's a lot of different neighborhoods, some that have been more heavily gentrified than others, but especially the part of Northeast Minneapolis, they call it Lower Northeast, that's like right out of downtown or that adjoins the Mississippi River that's close to North Minneapolis. And that's where this Upper Harbor Terminal development that we're, our podcast focuses on is on that section of Northeast Minneapolis. And that is really like, again, like probably the most heavily gentrified part of Minneapolis. A lot of the people that I grew up with myself included can't afford to live there anymore you know or like a lot of the families that i was raised with now live in like the northern suburbs or the exurbs and got pushed out of the city so yeah i'm a i'm a, a proud son of northeast minneapolis how old were you when you started realizing your environment like you you like when did the awareness happen i think honestly i i, I it's hard to say when I became conscious of it to be able to articulate it, but I think I was kind of always aware of it in the sense that like, because it was such a polarized environment, like we always knew the difference between North Minneapolis and Northeast Minneapolis, you know, like racist people would tell you like, don't cross that bridge, you know, like don't go over North, don't. And it was just very much like, also like we're, you know, I don't know if it's probably like this in other cities too, like we, we play sports for our local parks, you know, and we might, the only time I would really travel outside of my side of the city is to go play football or baseball on another part of the city. So you always had like a sense of like neighborhood pride, you know, like we would claim our neighborhood. We're, we're from Northeast and 
like that that bad joke about the longest bridge in the world that I told you. That was like th- them type of comments were very present in our lives. So I kind of always had a sense, I think. Mm. And then I I I, I feel like I, I became maybe more self aware at an earlier age than some other people because I went to a Catholic high school that was drew from all parts of the city and all parts of the metro really so where most of my another big part of of our working class culture is like a lot of people who grow up northeast they'll never leave northeast you know their whole lives and i'm sure that's like that in a lot of neighborhoods of working class neighborhoods it's like you don't really go outside your community you know what i'm saying you you kind of stay where you're at but i had the opportunity to go to a, a high school that gave me access to people from all over the place you know so i knew people from south minneapolis and from north minneapolis and from the suburbs and it it was hard for me in a lot of ways it was kind of alienating because it also put me on a different trajectory than a lot of my working class friends you know like my parents got sober when i was younger and were really dedicated to us getting an education and kind of like moving up in the world like i kind of come from like a striver family in a sense so I kind of had to get a whole new friend group and I kind of felt like almost like shame or embarrassment because most of my friends who either went to Edison High School, which is like the Northeast Minneapolis High School, or a lot of them went to North High and and kind of like stayed in like a more parochial, insulated environment. But I started to see stuff from all over and that gave me, I think, a sense of like awareness of like, okay, this is this is you could kind of, I could kind of see myself from the outside, you know, or see my neighborhood from the outside and understand the way that Northeast Minneapolis fit into like the broader scheme of, of the Twin Cities, I guess. So you had a, a really deep perspective in what was going on and what is going on. But even at that point in high school, you were aware of it. I was aware only through education and i was taught to look out for these things you experienced all these things is that accurate in terms of like in terms of your awareness you were privileged to go to this school whereas you know where you were from other folks were not able to go and like you said you had opportunity to to almost like when you mentioned the neighborhood high school and I just, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the neighborhood high school, most of those folks never left that area versus you left that area just to go to school, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. yeah that, I think that like, that's, that's accurate, that's true. You know, and of course it's like, anytime I'm telling a story, it's like papers over some nuance because I'm realizing now as I get older that I also grew up with people who had an international perspective in the sense that their families moved from Ecuador or moved from Mexico, you know. So I'm realizing they were looking at things differently, but especially from my community in terms of kind of like the working class European American kind of like traditional Northeast, I did in a sense peek my head above water in ways that other people didn't have a chance to just because like I said, my parents got sober. my community, a lot of people were dealing with like the impacts of deindustrialization and poverty and addiction, you know, and like for me, having my parents get sober and be around and going to, I went to De La Salle High School, Catholic High School, and then I was also a first generation college student. So I feel like 
that was another step in the process where I, I originally went to school for a semester in Memphis, Tennessee, but then I came home and I went to school in St. Paul, a liberal arts school. And that was, again, another process where I kind of came to class consciousness and also got a more of a vocabulary to speak about race in the way that impacted my life because going to college, you know, and it's like they didn't teach me a lot of stuff in, in the classroom, but it gave me space to read. And it really more so just gave me an opportunity to interact with people from different environments where I realized like, okay, these like professors, like to me growing up, I, I never knew a professor. I never really interacted with people who had that type of education. And then I got there and realized like, they're no smarter than my parents or no better than us. They just have had these opportunities, you know? So it, it really helped me, I think, see myself in my community from with a little bit of a broader than, lens than if I would have just like stayed on that neighborhood path, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So the question, do you consider yourself a community activist? Yeah, I would consider myself a community activist. Like I would strive to be an organizer in like, in the way I've been trained, we kind of make a difference between an activist and an organizer in terms of like both roles are important, but an activist might be like the person who's on the microphone or agitating or publicly raising awareness to issues. And then like an organizer is in that same ecosystem, but the organizer does like, more behind the scenes work in relationship building and coalition building and strategizing and it's not just when like the emotions are high or when the cameras are around but does like the work of building like a political infrastructure so i think i play both roles you know and i i, I definitely am a politicized person i definitely want to be an activist or an organizer you know like i want to contribute to creating change and i think the where i see my role is like popular education you know i'm an artist i make music and i do the podcast and i am interested in words you know and like in it and again i think it has something to do with being a first generation college student like i always really believe in poor people and i really believe in working class people and i really believe that we have the capacity to like be engaged in these discussions that impact our life around public policy around law around politics all these things but we're really just not encouraged to or allowed to you know or like we're overworked underpaid misinformed excluded from the conversations and i feel like for me having the opportunity that i had to go to college or just to be able to step back and take a breath i feel like it's my i've always had a feel like a, almost a responsibility or a passion for like bringing this information back to the communities i come from and really like disrupting the kind of high-minded conversations that like happen amongst the ruling class where where like you know poor people working class people are more spoke about but we're not involved in the conversation so I, i'd say like definitely that's, has something to do with activism and organizing and, and popular education is like i feel like where i fit in the best so the uht project yeah. so was there something before that that you were energized about and then it and then you found out about this and then this became your focus or you found out about UHT and it um a little bit of both I, I actually found out about UHT through some other organizing I was involved in like I got politicized during my college years and then got involved in a couple different ways you know like I partly through like the local hip hop community and then 
again, through my experience growing up Northeast, like talking about race and racial justice was really important to me. And then talking about class, I started to identify as a socialist and realize that like the in the things that were impacting my life were systemic. They were about capitalism and white supremacy. So I was in my early 20s, like getting involved in things and, and trying to figure out how to get plugged into the social movements in the Twin Cities. And I got connected to a community organizing training called Speak. And I was like an eight-month cohort-based training that kind of got us in, prepared to be involved in organizing and activism. And, and that I stayed involved in that network and got involved in this. Now it's called Parks and Power. At the time, we didn't have a name for it, but it was like a local organizing initiative to get people connected to local politics through the Minneapolis Park Board. Like we have a unique setup in Minneapolis where our park board is an independent, autonomous elected body. It's not like a department of the city government. And it's the largest landholding body in the in the city. It has its own police force. It has its own taxing ability. It, it stewards like over a hundred million dollars every year of public money. So I was involved in that campaign, and through that is how I got aware of this Upper Harbor Terminal project. And the reason why it was so it hit me so hard is because at that same time, that's probably like. 2010 maybe i first got aware of it something like that and that's when northeast minneapolis was like being hyper gentrified like where it was really starting to come down on us like and a lot of the riverfront properties is what were being flipped you know there used to be this bar called gabby's which was like a kind of it was like a multi-racial bar that was like a working class bar one of the few spots in northeast that had like a hip-hop night it was it was it was a cool spot and that got bought and turned over into this hipster bar called Psycho Susie's that was like, all of a sudden it became just like a place for like these white newcomers to go to. And it was just very obvious that the Northeast neighborhood that we grew up in was no longer for working class people. And I was really politicized around gentrification and what I was experiencing. And then I seen this Upper Harbor Terminal project and realized like, oh shit, this is, they start planning for this stuff early and for folks listening, the Upper Harbor Terminal is 48 acres of city-owned land on the north side riverfront. So the Mississippi River runs through Minneapolis. And if you look at the way the city was developed on the south side of the city, there's no industry allowed on the riverbanks. It's like pristine parkland on both sides of the river. It's beautiful. You could go there, walk on trails. It's quiet, you know. And then if you go on the north side and northeast, it's all toxic industry along the riverfront. There's some of the most toxic sites in the Midwest are along the Mississippi River in North Minneapolis. The Northern Meadows Recycling Plant has been like the neighborhoods that we're talking about that we grew up in have like a 330 percent higher rates of asthma and cancer than like Western Hennepin County from these toxic sites along the river. In northeast, that's where they started to gentrify, but they hadn't got to the north side yet, you know? And this Upper Harbor Terminal is really how they're trying to crack the north side and gentrify it. So they they got 48 acres of land, public owned land. It used to be a shipping uh, terminal for barges. Barges would come down the Mississippi, stop there, load up and then keep going. They closed that and now in the city chose to work with the wealthiest white people in the state, the Polad family. They own the Minnesota Twins. They own a lot of corporations. They're on the Forbes uh, richest 500 or whatever. They're literally billionaires. 
and now they're billionaire inheritors. The father created kind of like the empire. They, and they're a banking empire. They made money on foreclosures and uh, hostile takeovers. They're a dominant real estate interest in the city. Like they were some of the main players in gentrifying downtown Minneapolis, a neighborhood that used to be called the Warehouse District. It was like a kind of post-industrial area that a lot of artists lived in and it was kind of abandoned and it was a lot of cool, funky stuff going on down there. And they completely flipped it. Now it's like one of the, again, like a, you couldn't think of a more gentrified neighborhood. Every, every stereotype you have of gentrification is happening in the North Loop. Tons of new condos, high-end apartments built, all these fancy restaurants. Like people move to the North Loop and they never leave the North Loop and they have no idea that poverty exists in Minneapolis or, you know, and it's predominantly white. And, and this family is the, one of the main landowners and developers in that gentrification scheme in the North Loop. So the city chose to sell this riverfront land to these people or wants to, they're, they're, we're still fighting them, but that's who they chose to work with to develop this piece of land. So when I seen that, I just was so angry. You know, I just, I, I can't comprehend that you would choose to sell public land in one of the most impoverished communities in the state that's mostly black, it's black, it's Hmong, it's Latino, there's poor white people there, but it's mostly a black neighborhood. So you have an opportunity to do something different, right? You have all these public officials who give lip service to like racial equity and talk all this big game, but then an opportunity comes to actually do something to economically develop the neighborhood in a way that could lift people's quality of life. But instead of doing that, you choose to, to work with the wealthiest white people in the state to build a seven to 10,000 seat concert venue that will provide very few low income jobs, you know, no real jobs for people. It caters to all these white people who have extra money to buy high value concert tickets. They wanna build a hotel there. They wanna build market rate housing there. And this is a part in a neighborhood that's already on the verge of gentrification. Like we go door knock in the neighborhoods around there, which are poor neighborhoods and people literally getting offers to sell their house for cash like a couple times a week you know so this scheme is happening and and that's how i zeroed in on the upper harbor was just realizing like okay this is a real concrete example of how gentrification happens of how capitalism is reproduced you see the city taking an active role of redistributing wealth upwards towards the wealthy and i just it took a long time to get to the point where we started to make a podcast because we've been organizing around it for years, you know, and trying to raise awareness and get people involved. And finally it got to the point where I was just like, I have to tell this story. Like, I feel like I, it was really important in the context of the organizing because again, the local corporate media is not telling the true story of what's happening with this development. You know, they're telling the story that the city wants you to hear or, framing it in ways that are really not getting at the core dynamics of power. So that's kind of the upper heart route. I was already engaged in organizing and we're, you know, I work on other issues as well because it's connected, but I just think this is such a good microcosm of like how uh, public policy works to like enrich the wealthy and further impoverish those who are already poor. How'd you come up with the name of your podcast? Shit, I don't know. Honestly, it just hit me. I think I, I'm not. I, well, I, I had a song where I said, "Oh, so is money, power, and solidarity, right?" Money, power, land, solidarity. Right. So, like, I kind of tried to go with the MPLS, like Minneapolis. Mm. 
and I had a song, like the song that's the theme song for the podcast. I wrote that before we had the podcast. And in it, I said, like, we need money, land, solidarity. And that, that line always stuck with me. And then I just got to the power part to put the P in there, I guess. I was, like, looking for a name for it, and it just kind of stuck. Okay. Yeah. You hit on a lot of stuff. So what was the first action that you took with Upper Harbor Terminal? What was the first, I don't know, protest or action or like what was the first thing that you and others did? The first thing I did actually was I got recommended because of this campaign I was a part of that was working on park board issues early in the project project before they were even calling it the upper harbor terminal i think like it was like probably like 2012 or i'm getting my years messed up but it was that it was like early in the game like before 2015 i think there was a committee put together to advise the city and the park board around affordable housing and somebody recommended me to be on it because i was a part of this campaign that was pushing the park board so I was a part of this and that was like a really eye-opening experience for me that pushed my political consciousness because I was like, what? You know, I, I, again, like I, I'm learning as I go. I come from working class people and like an example I'll use a lot is my dad was my par- my baseball coach at, in the park board. And I don't think any of us knew that the park board had like elected representatives. So then I'm like, oh, there's a committee that gets to like, way in on this project cool i'll be a part of it and it was me and i was probably the one of the few working class people on the committee and one of the few critical voices and they were trying to get input on what type of housing should be a part of this development and then i realized through that process that it was all a charade they weren't taking our input seriously we didn't really have any power none of our recommendations got followed through on And that really pushed me to realize like, okay, you can't just go through the official channels because they're not, they're not really designed to change anything. They're designed to say, Hey, we did community engagement. We had a feedback process. Right. But it wasn't, they, I seen through that, that they weren't taking that seriously or they weren't like communicating that information to like the broader public. It was like the small group of us. And most of the people on there were not interested in like what working class Northsiders or people from Northeast really cared about. So I I was a part of that and that kind of went by the wayside. And then there was a group actually over North that was really pushing things. And it was a coalition of a couple of different groups. There was like a environmental organizations. There was like community groups that were more rooted in the black community. There was like some education groups, a group called Project Sweetie Pie, which does like urban agriculture. And they were also criticizing the Upper Harbor saying like, we have this once in a generation opportunity to develop something how dare you sell it to these rich white people like and they had a proposal that they wanted to put a school and an urban farm there so then the that park board campaign that i'm a part of is called parks and power we joined that coalition and started to support them so there was a few different actions that happened like we held a one of the a a big one is we held a concert actually on the development site so most people don't go down to that property. It's it's hard to get to. It's like cut off from the rest of the way that geographically it works. And I guess this fits in like to the design and architecture conversation is like in North Minneapolis, there's the river and then the in- industrial area. That's like all these factories and all this like 
steel and just kind of pollution. And that's like a couple block strip. And then there's the I-94 freeway, which cut through a black neighborhood. The same story you'll hear in other parts of the country. They ripped up homes and cut North Minneapolis off further from the rest of the city. So there's the river, all this industry, the freeway, and then the neighborhoods of North Minneapolis. So this site is like hard to get to. So a lot of people have never even been there. Uh, other than like, there's a lot of really cool graffiti down there and it's kind of like a counterculture spot right now. But there, we held a concert down there and, and got people clued into that, hey, this is happening. Like most people didn't even know it was happening, you know, that they had already signed an exclusive rights agreement with this wealthy development company. And that was probably in like 2017 maybe. And that kicked up a lot of energy and that group then did a bunch of activism which led up to like forums with the city council representatives from the north side pushing them to say like we don't want this project to go through we want you to stop it we want it to be reconsidered we don't want to sell this land to wealthy white people we want it to be developed for the community because at that point it the development was going up for its first vote at the city council and Leading up to that vote, there was immense activism. Like we showed up so hard that they delayed the first city council vote because they just, it would have looked so bad for them to vote on it because we filled the city council chambers. We held forums with the city council people and pushed on them super hard. So we got that vote delayed. But then again, this is another thing that really raised my consciousness is the those two elected officials were supposed to be new progressives. Like they had unseated the previous elected officials who were really conservative people, these are two black representatives, but they really didn't listen to us. Instead, what they did is made some kind of compromises where they said, look, we're still gonna approve the plan, but we're gonna create this new community advisory committee so there could be like a voice for the community at the table from now on. So that initial vote, it, it was to approve the first phase. They, the way they've set up this development is there was a, a concept plan, which is like the rough blueprints of what's gonna happen. So they know that they wanna have a concert venue, they know they wanna have a hotel, they know they wanna have housing, but they haven't really dug into the details yet. But that initial city council vote was to approve that concept plan. And, we, and the community was very clear to say, we don't want you to approve that. Like stop the project now, go back to community. We lost, you know, honestly, we, we won some concessions, like we delayed the vote and we got them to like, again, we got them to write some racial equity, quote unquote, language into the plan, which really is just a way to try to send people off, I think, because it made no concrete commitments. It didn't change any of the foundations of the plan. They're still selling the land to these wealthy white people. And, and after that vote is when we started the podcast, because I was honestly heartbroken. Like a couple of times over the years that I've been engaged in this project, I've really wanted to quit. It's like driven me to the brink of depression a couple of times just because it feels like so obviously offensive and, and there's no real grassroots support for the project. There's tons of grassroots support against the project, but you just see that it's, there's not really a democratic governance system here where like the, what the wealthy landowners want, they get, you know? And we organized so hard to try to stop that vote, but they approved it. And after that, I was like, all right, in the regrouping, one thing that I can do to help moving forward is do this podcast because I had been following the project for so long that I had like a pretty good view of things and a pretty good analysis of things because I had been 
engaged in all the organizing for years. And we've regrouped it. So that was like um, two winters ago, not this last winter, but the winter before that. So the, after that vote, they said, all right, we're going to take a year to refine that concept plan and turn it into a coordinated plan, which would be like the concrete final development plan. So once the city council votes on that concrete development plan, that's when they'll sell the land to the developers. So we're still in that intermediate phase because it got pushed out longer than a year. They were supposed to vote on the concept plan this spring, but because there was so much, again, like still organizing against it. So they put together this, is it cool if I keep talking? I know I feel like- No, I'm no, no, keep, okay. you're good. Oh, you're good. So like after that initial vote, they formed this community advisory committee, which again, if you want to point to the ways that architects and community planners and developers kind of collaborate with wealthy landowners, is they collaborated in this facade of community engagement because it was a the people who were supposed to be the representatives of the community were appointed by the development team, by the developers and the city officials. So you have a, a body that's completely not representative of the community. It kind of is in some categories, if you look at it, like they have a decent amount of like people of color on the committee, which is important, but they're almost all landlords or landowners and people who are connected to the city officials and they don't have a critical perspective. So that body though has really been dysfunctional and not representative of the community. And there's been tons of community pushback. So they were supposed to vote in March, but because of protest and then because of COVID, they haven't voted yet. So they're actually now, we're, we're gonna release season two of our podcast this next month to try to time it up with the plan going back to the city council. So it looks like the city council is gonna vote on the final plan in September or October. And we're trying to ramp up our organizing. Like we're planning a rally now to try to raise more awareness and stop the vote. We've done like, we just had a, a calling campaign to try to stop. Another thing that they're doing is they're trying to use state bonded money, public money to pay for the stadium on the site. So they're gonna build a concert venue with one of the partners on the development. The main developers is this Polad family I talked about, owners of the Minnesota Twins, billionaires. The co-developer is a millionaire white family that owns First Avenue, which is like a legendary music venue in town that also owns several other music venues. They own tons of property. The woman who owns it, the CEO, is an inheritor of wealth. She's a white millionaire. And they want to give her $20 million of public money to build this stadium. And that's being considered by our state legislature right now. So we've been trying to stop that. Because if we stop that money, that'll buy us more time. But again, if it's a point to the ways that capitalism is in odds with democracy is that money could potentially be awarded before the city council votes on the plan. So how could you pretend that the city council vote is legitimate? Like if the state has already awarded $20 million to the project, there's no way the city council will then vote against it if the state has already given them money. So we're trying to raise awareness around that to say that like, that's a joke. You, you, how are you going to give these people $20 million and then pretend like we have some kind of democratic voice to stop this process? So right now it's, it's like really heating back up. Like it's these next couple months are going to be really intense around the Upper Harbor Terminal development. I didn't do like a deep dive into it. I looked up 
who's doing the master plan. I also looked at this this uh, music venue because I was looking at music venue looks sweet. Like, who's this? It's an architecture firm that's like, I don't say that they're famous, but when you say their name, everybody knows who they are. And I know on your podcast, you talked to an architect who was on the commission or council or something, but he stepped that down. Committee, yeah. What do you think about architects? After all this, because we're the ones who are doing the master plans. We're the ones who are trying to make this, we'll say like it's environmentally safe. We're doing all water treatment. And so I'm curious, what do you think about that? I um, I tend to usually kind of like the architects that I meet in terms of I've dealt a lot with landscape architects through my work with the park board. And then in this project, you know, they've had architects come in. And I guess I think about it in terms of what is the political economy and what is the politics that the architects are working inside of. So like the blueprints for the music venue, they look amazing, you know, they look beautiful. And I've talked about on the show how I really appreciate design and the more I've gotten involved in politics the more i've stopped and paid attention to architecture and really think it has power in the way that it shapes the environment and i'm excited and intrigued by it like i'm a novice in terms of like technical architecture terms but i'm interested in it and i I feel like wanting to challenge the architects that i'm around because it seems like architecture could either be employed in the service of the capitalist class and the ruling class and profit seeking and be enmeshed in these type of top-down projects or architecture could be at the service of the people and in a socialist environment we could be seeing these beautiful designs employed in a different way so like what i imagine is like i would love to see the city government you know, hire the best and the brightest young architects. Like, let's get the best young black architects in the country to come to the Upper Harbor Terminal and design the most beautiful housing we could imagine and then build that public housing, you know, prove that public housing does not have to look like big brutalist towers that are divested from. You could have the most ecologically sustainable, beautiful buildings built by the public sector and rent it at an affordable rate if you have the political will to do that. So I feel like architecture is like not one thing. Like I think that like the design and that technical capacity is so important. And what I think is unfortunate is just that right now there doesn't seem like many opportunities for architects outside of like um, the capitalist orthodoxy, you know, like the, the, city department that's charged with planning the upper harbor terminal and that's like running these meetings is a cped community planning and economic development and they really are presented as if they're like this ideological neutral city department right they just their job is economic development but we don't stop to ask the question as far as like what kind of economic development economic development that serves who that's that's not a a neutral term that's political territory to contest and if you look at cped the director came from the private development sector he's a absolute capitalist ideologue his view of urban development is 100 percent 
that you should sell public land to private developers completely inside of this highest and best use of the land ideology, which is not neutral and is um, embedded deeply in white supremacy, embedded deeply in, in capitalist logic. And I feel like that's what we need to challenge. And that's what's missing from our culture and our, our politics is like, nobody's asking those questions or there's not a political force that's challenging that you know so i, I really want to build relationships with more architects and and a lot of times like the architects that i work with that work at least for the parks they kind of lament to me that their options are limited you know they a lot of times they'll come to me and say like man i really agree with what you're saying and i really don't like this project or like we really could do it in a different way like i, I feel like there's a lot of uh, potential for like solidarity and like progressivism with the architects that I meet they you know but there's not uh, an, an economy for them to work inside of you know it just to me is a reflection that the developers and big money interests have kind of like cornered the opportunities right now and it's like the the city staff who are running the upper harbor terminal they're capitalists they're conservative people they're 100 neoliberals and they don't have to be that's i guess that's that's the point that i'm trying to make with the podcast is like none of that is is like uh ordained by nature that's just the balance of power right now so i'm i'm curious to know like i want to learn more about like what what type of organizing is happening inside of the architectural community to challenge public policy so that we could build more public housing so that we don't have to just sell land to private developers you know like cped is the body that's gentrified the city of minneapolis they're the ones facilitating this you know while the upper harbor terminal is happening while they're selling this piece of city-owned land in north minneapolis to this big developer they're also selling them several plots of land in downtown minneapolis that could be used for public benefit because they can't think of anything else to do you know so i guess i think of that's my thoughts on on architecture is like I think it could be, it all depends on how it's deployed and how it's used. Like I look at public housing projects internationally and I see all these beautiful designs, you know? And then I look around the city and I see all these developments that look exactly the same, that are uh, market rate housing, which, which means unaffordable housing, you know? The top of the market luxury housing. And then the best we are told we can do is this like, public-private partnership mixed income quote-unquote affordable housing which is absolutely not affordable and if you look at it in context that's a part of conservative ideology that was the ronald reagan era when they wanted to put the nail in the coffin of public housing they turned over the provision of housing then to the private market and said we'll give tax credits to banks to subsidize these units using this area median income calculation which excludes most poor people you know while they're talking about selling this public land to private developers to build market rate housing at the upper harbor there's literally hundreds of people sleeping in tents and parks in my neighborhood right now like it's a crisis it's just it's hard for me to even fathom but it, but they're not proposing anything different because CPED and the city of Minneapolis is completely controlled by this neoliberal ideology. Wow. You said a lot. No, I no. 
I no. Think Amber's piece, that, that curated tolerance piece that Amber wrote in yeah. uh, Scallywag in our interview, she really gets at that affordable housing piece, which I think is great. Like people should listen to that. Like she has like a really profound insight. Yeah, yeah, she does. Everything you said is how I been feeling. So I've, of course I say like I'm conflicted yeah. because I've worked for these developers. I've designed for these developers. Here's the problem. Architects charge too little. Mm. And because we charge too little, we don't have a voice. This is my own personal opinion. The charging is facts. Like we don't charge anything. And that's historical precedence. And to feed the firm, you are at the mercy of these developers. And I feel like we tell ourselves we are designing units for families who have vouchers or subsidized housing, whatever. And, you know, the three Ps is the city, like government, uh, you know, federal government has stopped building public housing. And I, I agree with that because government mismanaged, like they can't, they, they, the reason why public housing failed is because they stopped putting money into it and maintenance and all that stuff. You know all this. We have good intent, but we were not political because we want to be neutral. And we're yeah. neutral because we want our bills to get paid. We want to feed our families. And it's, that's why I'm conflicted. I hear you. I mean, I, I work for a nonprofit. So it's different, but I have, I, I can resonate with that because I'm also, I'm really critical of foundations, but I get paid by a foundation. So it's like, I understand that there's a class interest and an imperative because that's kind of the only game in town, you know? And it's like, it really, I feel you. Like I, 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 I can hear what you're saying and empathize with it. And it's not a, it's not an easy thing to deal with. It's, that's why I think like our, my nonprofit, we just formed a union. And a part of that was because so many of us are critical of the way things are going and realize we were critical of the practice and realize things have to change. But then I like I almost got fired from my job for criticizing the Upper Harbor Terminal development because that family, the Polads, that is the lead developer, this billionaire family, they also have one of the largest foundations in the city. So and they give money to housing organization. So the organization that I work for is a provider of quote unquote affordable housing, right? So I'm I'm criticizing the Polad family on my personal social media, pointing to the fact that these are white billionaires going to inherit public land in North Minneapolis. And I literally got called into the office and told like, yo, you you shouldn't be doing that. Like we we might need to get a grant from them sometime, you know? Like don't don't you think you could like talk about somebody else or and I, so I'm like that's literally like the function of political repression happening right there, you know? So it's the same. If you're an architect and you're trying to get work, but then you're criticizing the developers, you're not about to get the work. It's like they, and that's, um, again, I, I would say that that's a, that's like the nature of capitalism, political repression, you know, that they're, and I, and I think, I, I guess I would challenge the notion that government will always mismanage like a, the U S government, did mismanage public housing intentionally because they didn't want a precedent of a successful public sector that would cut into the profits of the real estate 
economy and industry, right? But if you look around the world, public housing thrives and public sectors thrive. And if you look at the private sector, if you look at our healthcare, or if you look at the way that we manage wars in this privatized neoliberal economy, the private sector mismanages. The private sector is reigning in the Minneapolis uh, housing ecosystem now, and we have mass homelessness. We're facing a mass eviction crisis, and barely anybody can pay their rent. So I, I think that again, it's like I feel like our generation, maybe, or like what I feel called to do is to is to challenge that orthodoxy that that there can't be a, a thriving public sector. Like what if there was a lot of public money that architects could get access to? So then you could criticize private developers and know you could go somewhere else and get your bills paid. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. If I had opportunity to master plan up a Harper terminal, what would it look like? What would it be? And what would be different from what's being presented right now? Because I looked at it and I, was, I didn't see anything wrong with it, but the problem would lie in the amount of rent they're going to charge because it's a housing thing. It's a housing thing. The concert venue, who are you going to allow to perform there? Like, is it, is it country? Is it spoken word? Is it like, who is it for? Exactly. When you design it, you got building codes of how, how big is it, the seating, acoustics. But we don't think about, is it just going to be a hip-hop venue? Is it going to be a country venue? Is it going to, you know, at some point, I don't, plays, like, I don't know. Same thing with apartments. Like, there's there's certain things that we would put in. Now, what I don't like is affordable dwelling units. I don't know if they call it ADUs where you're at, but those units are get are selected by the owner and is usually at the worst locations. It has like the cheapest finishes and we comply with that. Are you really saving that much money by the finishes? And what's the mentality with that anyway? When Trump made that comment about low income or poor people coming in the suburbs, it's kind of like, what are you trying to say? And it's everybody in the United States have this mentality. So I'm kind of diverging a little bit. But no, I, mean, that's, I think that's, that's right to the core of it. That's like one of the episodes of our podcast is called Poor People and Beautiful Things. Mm -hmm, and yeah. Uh, that's why I'm into the aesthetics. I want to talk to the architects because poor people deserve the best. You know what I'm saying? Like, especially, so I think everything you're saying about, you know, there's the design features of the Upper Harbor are not the issue. The venue itself, like I said, I could look at it and think it's beautiful. The question becomes like, who's allowed in it? And then I think some other questions connected to that are like, who owns it? And who builds wealth from it. So it's like the building could look a certain way, but if it's on public land, the real offense in the project and, and, and where it becomes oppressive is the idea that you're gonna take this public wealth and hand it over to a private family that's already wealthy and they're gonna extract rents from it, extract the ticket prices from it, build their wealth and 
that's the model that produces this logic of, well, we're going to stick the poor people in the corner by the pollution and spend less on their projects because we're not going to get the rate of return on investment. That's all the private capitalist market logics. But if you have public land, no private individual needs to profit from it. As a matter of fact, I would argue that they should not. So like the Red Rocks music venue in Colorado is publicly owned by a municipality. So we could build that music venue, have it be owned by the city, and then all of then there's a democratic mechanism to decide what type of venue it is, mm-hmm. who gets to decide who gets to perform, and then all of the wealth built through the ticket sales, the concession sales, the appreciation of the value of the land gets recycled back to the public. You know what I'm saying? It, it, it goes to the public wealth. There's ways you could set up return mechanisms to make sure that money goes directly back to the North Siders. It's the same thing with apartments. You, if, you're, if the public sector is building the building and they know that they don't have a long-term profit incentive, they can spend the extra money to put the very best finishes, use the very best materials, and then rent it at a lower rate because there's no profit incentive. And once the building pays itself back, that money that's pulled from the rents can get recycled back into the building in a different way that the Polads would never do. So I, I, I think the point that you're making, it that gets at the core of it. And that's like the most offensive part of it. And, and again, why I feel like I'm excited to talk to more architects and try to build power with architects is because y'all know how to do it. And I feel like architects who really have like, a love of poor people and a desire to see the designs put towards the social benefit, you're like a invaluable piece of the puzzle, I feel like. It's funny because I, I want to agree with you. No, I mean, I feel like, I, yeah, we do have that power. We do have that power. But in my perspective, I've always seen like the, and this is where like the racism and systemics and all that stuff go into it. Cause there's this guy, here's an example. And it's a personal story. So this guy, his name is Mugby, Samuel Mockby. Yeah. And he, he passed away a long time ago. So he had this thing called rural studio out in Auburn, Alabama. And I fell in love with this program. I was like, I need to get in this program. So basically it's rural Alabama and he takes like these materials, like select a family, usually a black family and rebuild their homes. It's tied to the, to the school and everything. And I wanted in, I need to learn this. I need to do this. And so, but I wasn't about to, to transfer and go to Alabama. I wasn't, I just couldn't do it. I was afraid. It was fear. Fast forward, they did a presentation at a conference I was attending, and it was run by another guy who, it was like right after Mugby died, and this new guy was doing a presentation, and after presentation, I came up to him, and I was like, how come there's no Black people, Black students doing this? So you had this white guy and these white students going into these Black areas designing for them. And I had a problem with that. And I was just like, well, how, I mean, he gave me some crazy bullshit. And that was really the start of everywhere I went, everywhere I go, when I want any community good, is never an architect that looked like me. And so, and even when I try to get in, it's like, I get ignored. I, I'm not the right pedigree. I didn't go to Harvard, Yale. You know, I didn't go to any of those schools. 
So it's kind of like I'm shunned out and I'm from this area. What's going on? So we have the ability, architects have the ability and they're proven themselves to it. But my problem is, is when they go into a community, they don't represent the community. Oh, yeah. I can't. I mean, I can only imagine your experience because I've seen that here too. The development team, for example, you know, it's already an all-white development team. And then every consultant that they hired onto the project, like architecture firms, design firms, there's like some affordable housing or whatever, it's all white firms. And definitely, yeah, I, I just, that resonates with me. And if I could see it from my perspective, being a white man, I can only imagine in your perspective, how you, how glaring it is. And it's like, I guess, and to me, again, that's why I go back to in terms of like recognizing that it's all comes back to like a struggle, a political struggle and wondering like even with some of the, I'm realizing, thinking about how can I use any relationships I have at the university and in the public schools to start to like have these conversations with younger people and start to put people more into that pipeline. And then to me, one thing that makes sense then is like, I feel like something that reproduces that is like the retreat from public education, the retreat from the university, you know, the university of Minnesota used to be, we had a general college where like working class students, students of color from Minneapolis had like a window into the university of Minnesota, you know, but they've retreated from all that. And like you say, then the only the pedigree gets reproduced in these elite institutions and you got to come from money to get involved. So it's like, yeah, realize like if we wanted to have a different pool of architects who really like had the best interests of poor people in mind, then it goes back to you have to like invest in training people in those skills. And it all comes back to, I guess, political struggle because what we have now is not cutting it. It's not, it's not working at all. It's not yeah. working at all. Yeah, I can only imagine. It, it is like a lot of, yeah. I've been really frustrated even with like some of the architects I've built relationships with and they like come to me behind the scenes and kind of express support, but then very rarely do they take any stands in the meetings. And I realize like, you know, you might have good intentions and stuff, but you all kind of come from privileged backgrounds. So you don't really have any skin in the game. And then when it comes down to it, you're like, not you, but like them. No, you know, no, no, like, no. Just too willing to go along with the scheme, you know, and they don't really, they're not really committed to seeing something change most of the time. They end up yeah. becoming like somebody we have to struggle against. Yeah, it's, it's the whole neutrality thing. You have a client and you want to, it's always, it's always about the client. It's always about yeah. client satisfaction. Like they just drill that into you when you start working. It's all about the client. Any architecture firm, the first thing I'll say is client driven. We're, we're, we're all about serving and making you happy and stuff. And even you had said something earlier about how architects, how the funding part, we are trying to build it as cheaply as we possibly can. And going back to affordable housing, usually, and I never understood this, right? I never understood this. So it's, it's what it is, is construction costs, right? So construction costs in D.C., and New York will be hell a lot more money than St. Paul. And then the materials. You can make affordable housing with like plywood and you can make it smaller, like whatever. And I'm pretty sure that's going to be the same thing when with the Upper Harbor Terminal is that the goal is to make it on budget, on time. And the 
people who are building it is there to make money. So we are only like a tiny fraction of how much that they're spending. And we are trying to, and we're, but we're the bulk of the spent, right? Like the bulk of it is building this building. I don't understand how the developer, especially the ones that you're talking about, is going to make a hell of a lot of money out of this. And as much money as you possibly can. But if you're a billionaire, what's one billion to two billion? Yeah, well, I, I would actually, I don't, I don't think it's right at all. Like, I don't think they have any right to make any money on that land. Like, I think it's an offense. It's public I, land. Because it's public land, because it's over north, because, I mean, if, one question I keep asking myself and like running into, it's like a deep thing to consider is like, that's actually unceded treaty land that should belong to the Dakota people. That's like sacred land, actually, that, and, it, and again, like, I just think that the whole logic of capitalism, this highest, best use of the land that these people have the right. And I also don't think that housing should be treated as a commodity. Like, I really believe that housing is a human right. So I don't think anybody has the right to make profit off of somebody else's housing. And I know that sounds like that's really incompatible with the status quo logic in the United States and the whole logic of the real estate industry, which like is really intertwined with the logic that, you know, the logic of the people who employ architects. And that's what I'm trying to get to with this upper Harbor is it's like, it's really, I think we need to challenge things at that really deeper level in terms of if housing is really a human right, then the public sector has a responsibility to provide housing at the lowest cost possible. And the logic of the market can't get us there. And that, so, yeah, I don't think they have any right to make any money off of that land. And I, yeah, I mean, I think, and I think it's an offense that we have people sleeping outside in Minneapolis right now. And those people have billions of dollars, you know, like, I, it, that, it's a violent thing. I'm curious about the public ways to raise money. Like one thread I've been following, I've been talking with this guy who works at CPED. He's cool. He's an older Northside guy who has a critical perspective. He's actually, that's really interesting is this is a, a black man who was an organizer and led a community development corporation, like a neighborhood group over North for many years it was like you know it was a in a position of power and leadership in the city and the neighbor at like kind of the neighborhood level but developed affordable housing in north minneapolis and then he moved out of town and when he came back kind of the political winds had shifted and some of the programs that he had helped to create were put on ice and he got hired back at cped but he put in an alternative development proposal for the upper harbor terminal so while the city had, he, and he was one of the leading critical voices, him and I have some different ideas, but I really respect him because he risked his job where he would come to the meetings after work and say like, hey, everybody knows me here. I work for the city. I'm off of work right now. And I want to submit an alternative proposal and would say the city is not considering enough tr- options. This is a bad development. And his proposal is an industrial project where there would be like farms like hydroponic farms and like fruit cutting and fruit packing facilities 
And he even has some of his own finance relationships that he's willing to bring to the table where he could get capital invested. So it's been interesting to see him challenge the project. And, you know, him and I have different politics and I'm not a huge fan of his proposal, but I think it is better than the one that they're going with. But the reason I brought him up is because he and I have talked a bit about the power to bond at the municipal level. We're like, I, there, I think the city does have the power if there is the political will and the state to create large sums of money, big amounts of capital. You know, like they're already talking about $20 million for this stadium and that's to pay architects, right? It's to pay the, the builders. The city could directly bring that type of money together and pay architects to build housing, you know? So I'm curious about that. Like if there was the capacity and the political will to like try out some of those projects. And that's why I think it's so sad that they're rushing this project through at the Upper Harbor where like public owned land like this is where you could try something like that out. So let the city run up some money, put one of these city staff who is progressive and does come from the neighborhood on there and let them reach out to black architects across the country, you know, that look for the architects who didn't go to the big fancy schools, but they're talented, they're passionate, they're ready to work and start putting money on the table and putting designs on the table and building things with the public sector would be like, the more I think about this project, that's more like what I would advocate for. Like, I would like to see him do that. You ever thought about running for public office? Kind of, yeah, I have thought about it, unfortunately. (laughs) Like, I, other people have asked me that before and I am kind of hesitant about the idea, it doesn't ring, like it doesn't sound fun to me and i've been around so much to know that like it's a really taxing difficult thing and i guess in my political philosophy i recognize that like for example these two representatives who are elected on the north side right now who are moving this upper harbor terminal project them alone even though they've proven themselves that they don't really have an alternative vision and don't have the political will to do something different when you do, for example, Ilhan is from Minnesota, you know what I'm saying? If you're up there by yourself, you can't really do too much. And a lot of times what I've seen happen is people on the community organizing level, when they gain a little notoriety or they gain some purchase, automatically they step into then an elected position, but there's not the political organization on the ground that can support them to make different decisions. So a lot of times that people end up frustrated So that's part of the reason why I haven't really taken it too seriously, because I I feel committed to the idea of building a political base and a political organization. But then I I do see that it's like it it, it can be very powerful and you do have to challenge for like control of the state and like it's come up to me. So I don't know, I guess it could happen someday. I'm like, it, it gives me like, if I'm being really honest though, sometimes the idea excites me and sometimes I'm like, maybe I should do it. Or like, if I'm sitting here talking all this shit, like I might, you know, I might as well give it a shot. And I get really frustrated with our um, elected officials. But I guess what I recognize is that like without a deeper, without a support system and an alternative vision and like an organized body that could push on multiple fronts, like it's hard to really get anything done. I mean, I kind of see like twofold. A, you could turn into like a killer mic or um, be like Barack. There's two two things right there. Have you ever looked at like uh, the organizing in Jackson, Mississippi, like Shokwe Lumumba in the Jackson People's Assembly? Mm -mm. 
you might be interested in that. That's an example I think about where just to give a brief synopsis, like the Jackson, Mississippi elected a black nationalist, really, Shokwe Lumumba. He was like Asada Shakur's lawyer. He was Tupac's lawyer. He was a really a revolutionary activist in the 70s. And he was a part of this effort by the Malcolm X grassroots movement where they focused on Jackson, Mississippi to enact like a long-term vision for like revolutionary transformation. And they, he comes from a black nationalist perspective, but he, they built like a multiracial coalition. It just goes to the fact that like Mississippi, the demographics are such that it's like very black, you know, and it's a context where it's like a, a black majority with like oppressive white minority. So it's a different situation in different parts of the country, but the principles apply where they built like a long-term organizing project where they, they, and they have a dual power philosophy for creating change where they believe in like principled, critical engagement with electoral politics outside of the two-party structure. So they ran Shokwe on like the freedom, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, like the tradition of uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, where they built like their own political base through these people's assemblies. They would have public meetings where they would talk to people about projects and people from these people's assemblies would then take on organizing projects and then they ran candidates. And the candidates ex explicitly said, I'm not a Democrat. I'm not beholden to the property holders. I'm beholden to this vision of the People's Assembly. And they were avowedly socialist. And they would say, like, we're going to expand the commons. We're going to create municipal utilities, public housing. And then the other reason we're running for office is to limit the repressive power of the state, L start cutting police budgets and cutting their ability to squash organizing. And they were able to elect Shokwe Lumumba, this radical man in Jackson, Mississippi. And he had a whole term as a city council member and then got elected mayor. And they were really moving an alternative vision. He ended up dying in office under, I don't know, I think it's suspicious circumstances, but he like died of a heart attack, I think. But um, his oh, son is- this? It was in like 2013, I think he got elected. And then now his son is the mayor, Shokwe Antar Lumumba. And his son, like, you know, I'm not, I haven't followed up as much on it. And I'm not sure if, if like, it's the same project that it was. But that, you sparked my thought of that when you were talking about examples, you know. I thought about political, that route. And, I mean, this podcast, I'm trying to stay away from architects and start talking to people who are, well, not architects, obviously. But I really want to start talking to political officials. That's real. And just to get their, try to, still trying to understand, because I'm still educating myself on the whole housing crisis and try to think of solutions. And so far, at least for the architects, is not using these buzzwords like affordable housing and and designed for a better community. Like who's to say that this community wasn't already better? Political wise, I've thought about stepping into that. And uh, part of it is fear. Cause it's kind of like you work better outside of the government than in yeah. the government. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you don't have the power if you're in government. And it's just this disconnect between yeah. the community and elected officials. Like, it's just like you step over that line. And I felt this way too with architecture is that 
I'm in this bubble and I only talk to other architects and the only times we ever engage in the community is that one time you have the community as a whole brainstorming what do you envision this community to be or if it's like a zoning thing and you have to present your drawings against the zoning board and like say hey and the community is like we don't like this brick color and then you change the brick color but we're not we're not engaged like how you are engaged or we choose to not pay attention because we serve this master over here that pays our bills yeah so same thing with politics and I feel you on that. And that's why I'm also teetering back and forth on it because like, I want the power. Yeah. You know, it's, it's exactly, it's the title of your podcast. Like it's, it's the whole thing, you know, Yeah. you want that solidarity, but can you get it? I feel you. It's tough. It's, it's really tough. I guess, um, it's, I don't know, it's make it, it to hear your reflection on it is really helpful for me because I also I feel like I have like you said definitely fear and I don't know if it's something to get over or what but I'm like I'm a poet and I feel like I just have like an anti-perspective sometimes where I'm like knowing how the city has done us so often I feel like I have this chip on my shoulder where I'm like hell no I don't even want to like tank myself you know what I'm saying or be connected to that but then I realize how much of that is like imposter syndrome or how much of that is just being immature and and realizing like man you got to step up to the plate there's not it's not let go of that if you really want the power you that's a function of like internalized oppression you know i think to not think it's ours to take and if it's and again speaking from my perspective it's probably less of a jump for me being a white man like where there's so much more layers of violence and oppression onto people of color but but i think the i guess the keys what i've realized is like i have to be politicized though like it I guess it, to relate to what you said, I'm thinking about it from my perspective as a professional. Like I work at a nonprofit, so it's been hard for me. When I started to go to these Upper Harbor Terminal meetings, it's a challenge because I'm like, okay, I grew up in this neighborhood. I have a visceral response to this project. I'm a renter struggling to pay my rent. My mom and dad live over there. My family and my community, like, are the people you're talking about displacing or who have been displaced at the same time i'm a paid representative of this program over here that has different politics that's supposed to be neutral in my job i'm not even allowed to endorse candidates because we're a 501c3 all of our grant money comes from the big ruling class organization so you're not supposed to talk about socialism you're not supposed to really express your opinion what i realized is like my job is actually to go in there and facilitate these things you know like the grant money comes in usually to make sure that the community actually gets boxed out like an important piece of this upper harbor terminal plan i think again it's a good project to like look at to dissect things is that organizing i talked about that got the vote delayed and was really challenging the project as soon as that started happening a local foundation put two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in play a grant to do community engagement around the Upper Harbor Terminal. They did not give the money to the activists and the organizers who were challenging things. Instead, they gave the money to a group that was willing to officially partner with the development team and the terms of the grant became to implement their project, to engage the community. But it specifically said their goal was to get the project finished, you know? So it completely depoliticized things. It completely took the option of 
a principal challenge to say, no, like don't sell them the land. The best you could do is come in and use buzzwords, you know? So that was incredibly agitating for me because in my professional life, that's what I'm supposed to do. And that's why I think the points you're bringing up about politics is very important. We're like, we have to be able to challenge politically as like as professionals. So because a lot of times when our only options, I hate to say it, are like the Democrats who are capitalists, it's like we have to kind of give up our political agency. And then when our money's on the line, it's like you definitely ain't supposed to uh, rock the boat because you're going to make it harder for your firm to get the contract or your nonprofit to get the grant. So I feel you. I think the answer is political organization. Like if we could build bodies of people that see the alternative vision and, and, and are excited about it and are willing to fight for us and support us and maybe put money on the table to keep us in the game. And I think running candidates is a way to do that. Like, I don't know, do you, do you have thoughts on like the DSA or like in where you're at, are, are there like local political organizations that you feel like are kind of doing some of that work that you're looking for? Uh, no. Real shit. Are you, are you in New York or DC right now? Uh, DC. DC. Well, Maryland. Yeah. Uh, same Maryland. Thing. Okay. Yeah. First, I got to figure out what is it that I want? Like, there's this thing called like Black Homes Matter, DC. Like you said, the same things have happened in Minneapolis and it happened here. I mean, in DC, like it, it totally turned gentrified all around the same time. Yeah, it was like this, 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 this initiative just, just spread all over and it's global too. Like I, I talked to a woman in, in London and she said her area got gentrified around the same time. So it. it happened rapidly and it changed the, the area so dramatically. There's a strip called H Street. And remember as a kid, always going on A Street, like to, you know, has a little shop, mom and pop shops. We had a family friend who had like a store there and now it's unrecognizable because there's like DC has this height limit of 12 stories plus like penthouse or whatever. And all along 8th Street, you see these 12 stories where it used to be two stories. Surprise, maybe three, but not 12 stories. And it's like right there. And this isn't my home. This isn't, this isn't where I grew up. Yeah. So I was talking to Amber. I actually talked to Amber like a couple of days ago. Oh, dope. And one of the things that we talked about, one of the things we discussed is this rapid transformation is scary and is it really necessary? Like, what is wrong with this hometown, hometown feel? Why do you have to change it so dramatically? Or why do you have to change it at all? Or change it like one or two stores at a time? Well, now you're sounding like the suburbs people. You're changing the neighborhood. If you come in the neighborhood, you have the single family zone. And now you want to change it to a zoning that allows six stories, apartment buildings. And so what's the difference in a black neighborhood versus the white neighborhood that you're changing? So that was the conversation essentially that we were talking about. And there's no solution to that, I guess, because it's like, it's the same thing. The difference is one is black neighborhood, the other one's white neighborhood. And it's kind of like, let's go and experiment in a black neighborhood. And we're now they're realizing these white neighborhoods that fought so hard to maintain their status, their community. Yeah. 
that's that's all real. It's and it's like I'm definitely on the hearts and minds of a lot of people here too. Like been in those conversations. I guess I think like what's helpful to me in this in these conversations is like I'm always appreciative when I hear Marxists speak on it and point to like the invisible factors. I think that sometimes we can't see on the ground level, which is really like the big money capital in terms of like why go from two stories to 12 stories and why in the black neighborhoods first because the rent gaps there are the highest and because like you said the oppression and political repression that disallows people from organizing and fighting back there's not as much political power but also the land has been intentionally undervalued so a lot of these times it's international capital like you said it's a global phenomenon where one of the safest investments right now is urban real estate because it's depreciated for so long intentionally that now they're parking money there because that's where they're going to get returns and safeguard from losses. And I think even in Minneapolis, I think some of the logic behind now, the fact that they're trying to move affordable housing to the suburbs, I think there's those who are like earnestly trying to do it to desegregate and like open up every neighborhood to like affordable housing, which is obviously you want affordable housing in every neighborhood. But a lot of the people moving that at the local level are some of the more conservative players. And I think what's happening is that actually the land has devalued in the suburbs and the city has become more valuable real estate. A lot of the people who grew up in the suburbs now live in the city as young professionals and a lot of the more marginal working class lives in the suburbs. So they're packaging this transfer of affordable housing to the suburbs as like a progressive move to desegregate, but it's actually a standard practice of moving poor people to the lower, lowerly valued real estate and the least desirable parts of the community. You know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. it's like, Sometimes I think the narrative that gets pushed is like oversimplified. And I feel like I've been called before, like, or the, the anti-gentrification work that we've been doing, some of like the more like Yimby kind of, and, and a lot of times there are people I interact with because I realize like, I think a lot of this is like, I like to bring the class dynamics into play. Where like I was raised in a really working class household and I grew up as like a working class person in this city. So I feel like my politics and my perspective, like I heard you speak on your mother being a healthcare worker. And like, to me, I think that's probably a really different experience than a lot of architects, you know, their parents were probably like professional class people who probably aren't worried about catching COVID-19 because they're having to go do manual labor care for people you know what I'm saying? Still at an age where they should be able to retire. So that that that's what informs my politics is I feel, and I, I got crazy student loan debt. So I got a job that's like professional class. I work at a nonprofit, but I'm still poor actually. You know, if I really like break it down. So a lot of the people I run into are professional class people who moved here with a lot of privilege, who rented these new buildings, right? They're the consumers of gentrification and then they'll, tell me that I sound like a NIMBY or like a suburban person because I don't want these new apartments, you know, or I might be critical of what they're saying. So the difference is like, I'm not a NIMBY because you're trying to suck money and displace people from a poor neighborhood and the white people in the suburbs who are trying to stop affordable housing are wealthy people trying to block poor people's movement. Those are like two different things. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> You have any questions or anything? 
you know, I do have a lot of questions, but maybe we can have you on our show and we can do the opposite, you know, and just spend some time uh, asking you questions. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. We're, we're um, planning season two now, and then we're also going to do some, like, try some more of this new format where we, like, respond to content with guests. So we can figure something cool out. Okay. Just let me know. Yeah. You got my hey. info. Thanks for the invitation. I really appreciate the conversation. I feel like I learned a lot. Yeah, me too. Oh my gosh. I learned so much from you. Like, like seriously, like when I listen to this again, I'm probably, it's going to take like eight hours. Cause it's just, I'm going to, cause it's kind of hard. Like I paused a lot of times cause you said a lot of stuff <laughs> and I was just like, I was just unpacking it as I was listening to you, you know? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm so appreciative of like Amber and you and just, really want to keep having these conversations and talking it out with each other. It's important. It's important. Um, Well, thank you so much, GP. Hey, I appreciate it. Um, And then um, I would definitely love to have you come back. So we'll we'll just keep, keep building. Okay. All right. right, Thank you. All right. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Hey listeners. I have an exciting announcement. I decided to launch a membership program for the show where you have a chance to support me and the show directly. I love creating the show and it means the world to me that you all tune in to keep hearing me week after week, but it takes an immense amount of time and energy to produce. I want to keep the show going and I want to invest in its growth and I also want you to become a partner with me in this journey. That's why I'm excited to give you a chance to officially become a supporter of the show at glow.fm slash archispolly, A-R-C-H-I-S-P-O-L-L-Y, or by clicking the link in the show notes. It's quick and easy. It takes less than 30 seconds and just takes clicking a link in the show notes and using Apple or Google Pay. You don't have to create any new logins and you can contribute as much or as little as you like. If this show is part of your day or week, and you like what I'm doing, then visit glow.fm slash archespolly, all one word, and support me and the show in any way you can today.